Well, welcome to episode seven of MO Forum. We're delighted to be joined uh, today by Andrew Lee, who is uh, a member of parliament and now the shadow assistant treasurer in the Labor team. Andrew's uh, an ACT politician and before entering parliament was a professor of economics. So the obvious question is why would a professor of economics <laughs> enter the parliament and what, um, how is that remotely relevant um, uh, to your career to date as an economist, as a professor of economics, such that you think that there's a contribution that such people can make in the parliament? So Craig, let me give you the head and the heart answer. Uh, the head answer is the advice that I would always give to young people choosing careers, which is this, that unless you're a Buddhist, you believe you've only got one life to live, so you should live the most interesting one possible. And when opportunities come up that look as though they will be uh, stimulating and exciting, you should grab them with both hands. And the hard explanation is that for issues of like poverty and disadvantage that I worked on when I was an ANU professor, uh, politics is a wonderful chance to make a difference on those issues, to contribute to a public conversation about how much inequality we want. Uh, and as you know so much, as a, as a local member of parliament, sometimes just to make a difference, even on a given day, getting someone a, a benefit to which they're entitled, putting someone in touch with a job finding agency, uh, those sort of things really sort of help you sleep easier at night. I and think. I do agree with that amongst the most satisfying achievements uh, during my period of 15 years were the local achievements mm. for people who otherwise had no real prospect and no way of working their way through the system yes. to get that benefit restored or to get a little bit of help you know with someone uh, who was stuck overseas or but, but especially yes. vulnerable people. Yeah. yeah I remember once we, uh, we uh, got someone's nephew back uh, in time for Christmas and they'd contacted us on the 20th of December and this girl had lost her passport and didn't know who to turn to. Yeah. And we were able yeah. to sort out the passport yeah, and get in touch to get the airline back and just to get the email saying it's Christmas Day and she's home. Fantastic. Uh, it was, they were yeah, pretty special. Yeah. So uh, there's a view within the progressive side of politics that are economists are you know kind of pretty crazy people um, they lived in live in this abstract world uh, they don't therefore have any real relevance and certainly don't have any relevance uh, to the progressive side of politics i mean how would you respond to that well i think of economics as much more as a, a toolkit than an ideology uh, so keynes and friedman were both economists uh, karl marx was an economist of a, of a sort uh, Friedrich Hayek was an economist. And so it's really just uh, a way of analysing the world uh, rather than uh, a set of answers. Uh, economists want to think about incentives. Uh, we want to think about people making decisions at the margin. And generally, we, we th uh, think of problems in terms of markets. Uh, so, for example, when I think about what's going on uh, in changes in the media, I think about the impact that increasing competition has had uh, on the the increase of, of voices more towards the extreme ends of the spectrum. I think about the market for commentary. Yeah, I understand. Uh, uh, that's not a that's not an ideological thing. Yeah. I think it's it's just a just an approach Analytical, to the, to the world. Um, yeah. toolkit, as you say. But you just uh, mentioned four economists, uh, ranging from uh, Milton Friedman to Karl Marx. Uh, apart from some analytical tools. Uh, they do, do have rather profound uh, <laughs> ideological differences. Um, 
how can you separate an ideology from economic analysis and economic tools? Uh, when I was going through uni, mm. the Friedmanites were seen to be the right-wingers and the Keynesians were seen to be the left-wingers. Uh, there's probably a bit more of a fusion between those two, but still a huge spectrum, isn't there? Well, there's, there's issues of, of ideology and then there's simply questions of practicality and how to get things done better. So, for example, we have Milton Friedman to thank for pay-as-you-go taxation, uh, and he was one of the first people uh, who thought that the HEX loan scheme might well work. Uh, they were... I thought that was Bruce Chapman from well, uh, ANU. So what's funny about it is that Bruce comes up with the idea and then later discovers that Keynes had written it down in the 1960s. Uh, so he has to... Keynes or Friedman? Sorry, Friedman, Friedman yeah. In the, in the 60s. So Friedman, who, who I think we regard as... Uh, a fairly right-wing economist, yeah. is somebody who's helped to forge one of the foundations for, for a, a good progressive tax system because he just recognised that it made more sense to take a bit of money out of your pay packet each I week see, yeah. rather than to have a big tax bill to, uh, to, to pay at the end of the year. And then there's values questions. So there's economists who believe that we shouldn't care at all about inequality. And there's economists like me who think that inequality matters a great deal. But we would all agree, I think, on the data and the toolkit you've used to analyse whether inequality had, had grown or fallen. Well, let's discuss the role of markets. And you said mm. you, you like to think in terms of markets. And you know, some people say not everything's a market, and that's probably true. But mm. uh, there, there is value in applying those sorts of thoughts. Um, Karl Marx wasn't very big on markets, though, was he? He didn't want them at all. Didn't he just want a, a totalitarian regime? Uh, you know, isn't that isn't he the uh, antithesis of markets and probably Hayek, uh, also with Milton Friedman over the other side, were really into markets? Uh, well, certainly, you know, Marx understood the way in which uh, certain uh, markets would uh, would affect people's tastes for uh, for for uh, unions and so on and so on so he thought about uh political markets as well mm -hmm. but you're right he didn't in general believe that markets ought to prevail uh, and he thought that it would be better if you could organize an economic system in, in a way in which you didn't have uh you didn't use the incentives to work uh, my view on on that is it's a, it's a nice theory it just fell down when confronted by the real world uh, and as China showed us, uh, as soon as Deng Xiaoping actually gave, allowed Chinese villagers to have a share of what they grew, yeah. productivity goes up Went sixfold in, yeah. in, in, in these villages. Well, there was a grandfather for all of these, and uh, his name was Adam Smith, and mm. he wrote in 1776 uh, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Uh, and uh, again, when I talk about Adam Smith, people on the progressive side say, Emerson, you're a right-wing lunatic. Uh, but Adam Smith was actually against um, merchants who he uh, spoke of conspiring, even when they went off to have a drink in a tavern, against the public uh, because they wanted to collude all the time. And Adam Smith was a very strong supporter of a public school system so that all kids would get a good education. Uh, so, uh, you know... Yet Marx was heavily influenced by himself by Adam Smith and the uh, theory of the value of labour, the labour theory of value, sorry. Yes. So there's a, a whole lineage here, and I think people have shot off in particular directions, but when you go back to Adam Smith, probably do find a fair bit of labour philosophy there. 
No, that's right. And and one of the things that, that I take very much from Smith is that there is a difference between an economic view uh, and always a pro-business view. Mm. Uh, you uh, gave a, a terrific speech to uh, Cedar while you were in Parliament uh, in which you talk, talked about uh, the risks of politicians being captured by an industry association that pushes a view that might be good for its members but might end up being bad for consumers. And, and certainly my view as a Labor politician is that we should always stand on the side of, of the many rather than the few. Yeah. And it's a view you put very articulately in your time in politics. What's your assessment, Andrew, now under the new um, Labor opposition? Uh, I, again, did write a piece about Labor should take the high road, not the low road. That is the high road to maintain the connection with the Hawke-Keating economic reform model, the open competitive mm. model, and not the low road of finding a little opportunity to jab uh, the government in the side uh, at every possible occasion. What, what, what do you think is the prevailing view within the opposition? Well, I think that is the prevailing view, Craig. The uh, high road? The, the, the high road. And, and it's grounded on the notion that the politics isn't Coke and Pepsi. If it were, then when you see the other brand pursuing a successful strategy, you should immediately try and copy that strategy. But actually, uh, the, the role of Labor in politics is, is quite different from the Conservatives. We're the generators of ideas, the initiators of reform. And uh, you know, Lindsay Tanner put this very nicely to me in a conversation where he, he, he just simply argued that for the Conservatives, negativity doesn't, doesn't undermine who they are. Yes. Uh, but for yeah. us, mm. negativity ultimately corrodes our soul. That's easy to say, but yeah. uh, when you see a government misbehaving and you have the temptation of, uh, of going on the attack, that's when the challenge for us will come of, of maintaining the sort of uh, policy innovation uh, commitment to open to open markets yeah. uh, and, and eschewing negativity as much as well, we can. It does bring us to this issue that we already started this, to discuss, which is it would be easy for an opposition, particularly now a Labor opposition, to try to get the support of various producer groups, interest mm. groups, uh, and therefore if uh, they came along and gave the impression that if we tried to block something of the coalitions, they might back us at the next election or they might make a political donation. Um, what do you think of that sort of approach? It's always uh, tempting to try and, uh, try, try and back particular producer groups, but I think we ought to invariably be thinking of everything we do through the lens of workers and consumers. Uh, so industry assistance isn't all bad. There's, there's industries where research and development spillovers are significant where the jobs are regionally concentrated and so a firm shutting down would really uh, wreak havoc on a, on a local area. Uh, the Hawke and Keating governments recognise this, as, as you know much better through, than me, through those steel plan and car plan yeah. and textile plan to, to, to help industry restructuring. But it's all done not with an eye to helping an individual business for its own sake, it's done with an eye to helping workers and, and consumers. And we never, you should never lose sight of who our true constituency is. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be the case, though, for the coalition too? Shouldn't they be, you know, the party that governs for the many and not for the few and for the consumers and not the producers? Or do you think there is an ideological difference there? Well, they should ideally, but mm. uh, both parties, I think, ought to be consumers' parties. Uh, but too often, I think you see the uh, the, the conservatives siding uh, with 
business business interests uh, on issues around competition in particular, mm. uh, rather than recognising uh, the huge benefits to uh, consumers of lower prices. Yeah, uh, We had this in tariffs, thousands of dollars in the pockets of the typical Australian household as a result of tariff cuts, and we've seen it in, in the competition reforms of the yeah. 90s. But can you be pro-business and pro-labour? Absolutely. But, uh, but I think it's, it's recognising uh, that you're supporting business interests uh, in order not to support an individual firm, but yeah. to support a, an overall competitive, competitive system. And I guess one way of thinking it, it's a means to an end, that, that you're not simply supporting the business because they might support you uh, through a donation or, or get their members you know, organised to vote for you, which, by the way, very rarely happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Um, but I suppose that um, there is a difference between supporting businesses who want you as a political party to protect them mm. from competition and, on the other hand, supporting competition. And if businesses are able to handle that competition and thrive in it, well, you're really supporting them too on Ab the way through. Absolutely. And always recognising that if you truly believe in innovation, then you're likely to be holding innovation back uh, if you su support, support an industry that isn't viable and because you thereby prevent the capital and the labour from that industry into flowing into, into new entrepreneurial enterprises. Well, I did see a remark from um, the new small business minister who said, well, if there's a bit more protection, there'd be some more money for those businesses than then they would innovate. Uh, there's another economist called Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter who didn't think that that was the way to go. <laughs> Do you think I should introduce Bruce Bilson to jo Joseph Schumpeter at some point? Is stage? Joseph still around? Uh, <laughs> well, he's certainly got a couple of books. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I could just, uh, just just bring in one of the creative destruction tomes into the yeah. uh, into, into the chamber and casually sort of wave it at... Uh, but the argument Bruce. here is that the competition blowtorch actually forces businesses to innovate. And if they're not innovating, they'd be looking over their shoulder saying, well, someone else is picking up the latest technology. And if I don't, I die. That's absolutely right. And you look at uh, re really competitive industries at times of big structural change, steam at the end of the 19th century, tech, high tech at the end of the 20th century, and actually the returns, if you're investing in either of those industries, aren't super normal. There aren't super normal profits being yeah. made. Uh, they're, innov they're innovative despite the fact that they're, they're not sitting around enjoying big fat profits. In fact, a lot of these companies are going to the wall. Yeah, so if you keep them lean or you create an environment where they're lean and frankly a bit mean in the sense that they have to um, jostle and compete against each other, then the consumer is more likely to win. That's the proposition, isn't it? I mean, I do worry a lot about innovation, Craig, mm. but I don't think that that it's it's best achieved at the uh, at the expense of the consumer. I think it has to do with improving the quality and quantity of the yeah. education system, maybe something around our innovation culture, the sort of startup nation ideas of Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv. I yeah. perhaps have something to teach us. And, and it's been said uh, to me by some wise people in business, including a Tasmanian cheesemaker at the 2020 Vision uh, Forum way back in 2008, I think mm. it was, that um, uh, Australians need to get used to the idea of failure because you can learn more out of failure than from success. And that's really the Silicon Valley experience, isn't it? That, that the community understands that lots of things will be tried lots of things will fail, but one out of 10 or one out of 100 will spectacularly succeed.
Exactly. And this, this Silicon Valley view that uh, some venture capitalists won't support, won't support people who haven't had one failure before because they, then they uh, won't yeah. know what failure looks like. Looks like, yeah. Uh, that's a culture we haven't quite engendered in Australia. I mean, there's, there's good moves in this space. Southern Cross Ventures is a venture capital company which has a, a foot in Silicon Valley and a foot in Australia and, and helping our mm-hmm. tech entrepreneurs kind of move and onto a, onto a yeah. global stage. But we still sort of bat below our weight, I think, yeah. uh, for, uh, for, for in, in high tech. You know, the cooperative Russia. research centres that mm. Hawk set those up on the advice of Ralph, Professor Ralph Slatcher, they have actually been a bit of a successful experience, uh, experiment in all of this, and that is to give credit to both political parties. Where cooperative research centres uh, failed, it hasn't led to a political backlash, and the idea yes. was that you know, if you knew they were all going to succeed, well, it's just like you know, money for jam. But you knew when you were setting them up that some would fail. The trouble is you didn't know which ones. And the community's been quite tolerant of uh, the fact that some cooperative research centres haven't worked out. I think generating that safe space for failure is really important. Mm. Um, when he won his Nobel Prize, Brian Schmidt uh, was invited by the Governor-General to do a roundtable at Government House. And uh-huh. He chose the topic of innovation and uh, the two polys he invited were uh, Arthur Sinodinus, now the Assistant Treasurer, yep. and, and myself, who by coincidence is... Your shadow. shadow. Uh, and it was it was a terrific discussion. I've got uh, great admiration for Arthur. I think yeah, I think uh, he's good too. We're fortunate to have him in the Parliament. Uh, but... Well, there was and he's read my book, so he's just a terribly good judge of character. Oh, he's, he's a very, very well-read man. Uh, and, and the sense I got out of that uh, that discussion was really that no one had all the answers, that, yeah. that people, scientists and, uh, and and researchers alike, were groping at, at what, a, what a solution would look like. Because our government R&D spend actually is pretty high. It's a mm, business yeah. R&D spend yeah. that's relatively low. Yeah. Uh, and the low patenting rates, I think, they're a concern, but I'm just not sure exactly how we fix it. So is it all about growing the pie in progressive politics? What about redistributing it? What about um, you know low-income people getting more money from government? What's your outlook there? What's your philosophy? Oh, I think growth's enormously important. It's, it's uh, almost impossible to find a country which is... Uh, generous towards the poor at home and abroad uh, that is not enjoying economic growth. Uh, when countries go into recession, the poor suffer the most. So you've got to have growth. But at the same time, you also want to make sure that uh, you've got a welfare system which is targeted towards the poorest. Australia's traditionally done very well on that. And a school system that makes mm. sure uh, that you've got great teachers teaching the most disadvantaged kids. Yeah, well, there's two types of redistributions to think about. Um, one is the redistribution of income and the other is the redistribution of opportunity. Mm, mm. Uh, and some people say, well, there shouldn't be equal income. And I can understand that, I think. But I don't see why there shouldn't be equal opportunity. I mean, you can, if everyone gets the same chance in life, as a government, you've done a pretty good job, it seems. Indeed, and certainly uh, no, no one would argue for perfect equality. As we talked about before, uh, the, uh, the Marxist experiments have been a spectacular failure. Uh, but then if you survey people and you ask them how much wealth you think the bottom fifth and the top fifth would have, they give you answers like uh, 15% and 25%. Uh, not the reality, which is 1% and 62%. Right. Uh, so the reality is, is well askew of, of what people would like. And I think the notion that we ought to tackle that uh, by providing more government resources for the most disadvantaged kids 
to within their education, I think is a is a pretty pretty appealing one. But then I hear people on the conservative side saying more money for education doesn't lead to better outcomes. Uh, that's that's right in a sense. Uh, more money for education doesn't automatically drive up outcomes. It just generates the possibility of improvements. So in Australia, we've had uh, a generation and a half of significantly increased spending without much increase in, in test scores of year eight and nine kids and yeah. literacy and numeracy. Um, so that's because there hasn't been the reform. There has been the money and not the reform. Is that right? I don't think we've done... Uh, you can you can raise a bunch of theories for that. Possibly we're teaching different things. So uh, Australian school children know more science to, today than they, than they used to, and that's taken away a little from uh, literacy and numeracy. And mm-hmm. there's more challenges in dealing with an environment in which... Uh, there's uh, there's there's more uh, devices devices in the classroom and more distra- distractions potentially, uh-huh. but I yeah. don't think that's the, that's all of the answer. And yeah. part of it is that we haven't directed the additional resources where they're needed most. And one of the great things uh, I think that our government did uh, was to uh, ensure that there was greater transparency on how schools were performing and in- encourage uh, states and territories to focus resources on things like teacher quality, where yeah. it's agreed the gains are largest. Yeah. I uh, was in a discussion yesterday with uh, an, uh, another economist who uh, has done a lot in the education area, and there's an assertion by the um, current government that more autonomy leads to better student outcomes, and a- the ABC did a fact check on that, and there's no evidence of that. By autonomy, mm. I mean for the principals and the, and the local community. And he was telling me that where the principal is good, and the local community is very supportive, more autonomy does lead to better mm, results. Mm. But where the principal's no good and the local community maybe is not really, you know, plugged into um, the school very well, then more autonomy can be worse. Absolutely. And, and making sure that we have great principals is, mm. uh, is vital, particularly if you're going to hand more budgetary control over to them. Either making sure you have better principles or, or making sure that they uh, are supported. So you know, maybe we can learn something from the um, private sector model where principals in the big independent schools tend to be education leaders and then they have a bursar alongside them who's doing more of the financial work. Yeah. In big public schools, we often force principals to be both uh, a money manager and an educational leader and, and maybe that's loading too much onto them. Yeah, sure. You've written uh, based on quite a lot of um, uh, economic analysis and statistical analysis about um, the value of young people staying on to year 12, Mm. because certainly in my political career and in Logan City, there are a lot of people who said, particularly those who lived outside of Logan City, kids in Logan City should leave school. They're not cut out early. They're not cut out for it. They should get a trade. Uh, not everyone should go to university. Uh, you, what what uh, have your uh, analyses discerned about this particular issue? Well, as your regular listeners would know from uh, NO Forum episode three, uh, on average, each additional year of, of schooling boosts earnings by about 10%. And, and by schooling, I don't just mean uh, high school. I also mean yeah. uh, vocational training and, uh, and university. Education's a very good investment in that sense. Uh, most of what you, most of the cost of education is foregone wages, but it's likely that uh, if you forego a year of wages in order to to get another year of education, your lifetime earnings will be much higher than they otherwise. Well, what do you say then, Andrew, to the critics 
who say, look, kids who are at school who don't really want to be at school mm. should leave and there's no value in them staying because they're not studying, they're not, they're not learning. How does that fit with your analysis? I'd say, nice theory, let's look at the data. Mm. So Chris Ryan and I look at the example of uh, differential school leaving ages just after the war. New South Wales raises its school leaving age to 15. During World War II, Victoria and other states don't raise them until the early 60s. So you've got kids in New South Wales who are forced to stay another year, the ones who really wanted to leave. Yeah. And we track them into adulthood and look at their earnings, compare them with a, a similar Victorian. And it turns out their earnings are 10% higher for being forced to stay on to school uh, an extra year. Makes so, me think of that old Woody Allen line that uh, 80% of life is just showing up. <laughs> forcing kids to Or Chauncey Gardner being there. <laughs> exactly. Forcing, forcing these kids to stay in the classroom yeah. for another year actually ended up providing them with useful skills. And what do you think those skills are? Here, your statistics wouldn't reveal that. But I, I actually, I agree with you, but I do more from an instinctive point mm. of view. What What would be the extra benefits that an otherwise disengaged kid would get from staying on, say, from year 11 to year 12? I think some uh, some literacy and numeracy, mm -hmm. a better understanding of, uh, of, of science, but maybe also some of what, uh, and I'm, I'm getting into trouble because I think I'm going to mention Marx for the third time in this podcast, the old Marxist critique <laughs> of schools. His true colours, Professor, exactly, Professor exactly. Lee. The old Marxist critique of schools was that Carl schools, Lee. <laughs> schools were all about... Um, inculcating a capitalist culture of obedience. Mm -hmm. And I think there's sort of a little kernel of truth in that. Right. You know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. And I think in that sense, Marx nailed the, the point that being at school teaches you how to sit, sit still, do your, do your pay work. Attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. Be, turn things bit in of on discipline, time. that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So those cultural things, I think, matter as, as well as, as what, pe what people are learning, and the, he, the habits. And he would have been talking, I assume, too, about the fact that the school system was geared to the factory system mm. in those days. Exactly. And in fact, um, it, it was really, I'm not going to paraphrase him because I, I don't know enough about Marx, but it's sort of like turning out the factory fodder you know, through the schools. And so he would have, you know, had some concerns about that. But then again, Adam Smith, um, he was just a great supporter of of young all young people getting yes. a quality education. And I do hate it when politicians give different advice to poor kids than mm. they give to their own kids. Yeah. So to their own kids, they say, well, of course, you should uh, study hard and try and go to a sandstone university. And then they stand in front, some of them stand in front of poor kids and say, uh, it's good enough for you to drop out of high school. Yeah, well, you need someone to mow the lawns and clean the gutters out. As a, you know, if you if you if you're treating this as a, as, a, as a consumer, I can understand exactly where they're coming from. But yeah, I've, I've had I've had terrible arguments with people who have said, "Well, where are we going to get our tradespeople? Who's going to mow the lawns? Who's going to do the ironing?" That's the order of things. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Indeed. it isn't the order of things, as we said in episode three of Mo Forum, and it can't 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 and shan't be the order of things. I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right in what you said there, and, and it's striking to me that you don't see this in the United States. So you put George W. Bush or Barack Obama in front of a group of poor kids, and the advice they will give, uh, Republican or Democrat is work hard, study, mm -hmm. stay at school, and if you can, go to university. Right. Um, and that I'd isn't like, the same here, is it? Culturally, right. yeah. It worried me a lot, particularly in the Howard era, where there was this notion that uh, that, that it was okay uh, 
uh, for poor kids to drop, drop out of high school? I was um, uh, in in my book, Vital Signs, that after Senator Dennis has, has read, um, talking about a target for the proportion of the total population who would go to university. And I remember coalition ministers saying, where are we going to get them from? The nursing homes. <laughs> they were just sort of ridiculing yes. the idea that um, it, it's really a matter of um, encouraging kids to aspire to go to university. It's not saying you must go to university, but it's the cultural difference, I think, that you're pointing out between America and Australia. And and when you then, I shouldn't do so much talking, but then when we, we link that back to what you're talking about, risk-taking and creativity, mm. which I think is greater in the United States, which gives its, its strength, that kind of creative spirit and entrepreneurial spirit, you can see we need to get into some of that. Absolutely. And I think, too, that uh, we need to recognise that uh, in some sense, education is in a race with technology. Uh, and if we allow technology to advance too fast, then uh, if we don't skill people up, uh, they're really going to, going to struggle. To, to give you a concrete example, uh, cars now are, you know, the typical car has a couple of hundred microchips. Uh, a lot of what your mechanic will do when they have a, seri a serious problem is to look at replacing a motherboard or sometimes downloading a software update. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now, if you dropped out of school in year nine uh, and you don't know how to install a software update, yeah. pretty quickly you're going to end up being the guy who washes the wheels. And, yes. and that's a, yeah. a pretty a pretty low wage profile for your career. Yeah. So um, in terms of labour in opposition, first... Um, Months of opposition, Parliament starts very soon. Um, what's the way back for Labor? I think to continue to be uh, the party of openness. Uh, we're a this party is uh, in economic terms, yeah. It, absolutely, in economic terms. Uh, we're a party, as, as George Megalogenis once put it, of, of markets and of multiculturalism. Uh, we use markets in tackling environmental challenges like uh, uh, carbon, like uh, climate change or desalination in the Murray-Darling Basin. But we also have a, a good tra tradition, particularly in uh, recent decades, of openness on immigration, on trade, mm -hmm. uh, of recognising the benefits of foreign investment. I mean, just imagine what would happen to the car industry if foreign investment were to, were to withdraw tomorrow. Uh, and uh, and recognising that markets are great generators of wealth uh, and uh, a great engine of prosperity, which has to be set alongside uh, social social democratic institutions to look after the most disadvantaged. Well, progressives have, and certainly the Australian Labor Party, have not always been in favour of markets and, and openness and competitiveness. And there are plenty mm. who think that we should, um, for the sake of the workers, go back to uh, protectionism and, um, you know, the, the old ways. Uh, do you think that that can work? The example of the car industry is, uh, is certainly a concerning one were you to withdraw foreign investment there. Uh, but you can also see in the agricultural sector, going right back to CSR, the benefits that uh, uh, foreign investment has brought to raising wages and creating more jobs. Mm. Uh, again, if we were to remove all foreign investment from agriculture, uh, there would be fewer jobs and lower wages in, uh, in regional Australia. But I think Paul Samuelson put it nicely when he said comparative advantage is the best example in the social sciences of a principle uh, that is true and non-trivial. That is that smart people can miss the fact that the countries benefit from specialisation. Yeah. Uh, so it's always incumbent on uh, 
progressive, progressives in public life to be making the case uh, for open trade uh, as we do at the same time make the case for strong social institutions. But can a country be um, bad at everything? I mean, th this is the argument as to why you need protection because we're no good at anything. And uh, it's, it's, it's in some sense highlights the challenge of comparative advantage, doesn't it? The notion that really what we should be doing is comparing our skills to other, to other countries uh, rather than looking at who is absolutely best. Mm. I think we're absolutely best at a, at a bunch of things, ranging from uh, my, mining to education, uh, but we need to be playing towards our, towards our strengths, and uh, uh, that's something that uh, you and I and, and most of your, uh, your, your audience will be doing in their own lives. Uh, they won't be typically fixing their own cars and cutting yeah. their own hair. They'll be finding experts to do that just as Australia too recognises that we're better off uh, to specialise in education and mining and uh, uh, import our T-shirts and our iPhones. Yeah. And what of the future? What sort of industries w would you see as a, a, us having a kind of a natural strength or, or even an acquired one? So industry forecasts are notoriously bad. Mm. Uh, I've been doing some work at this lately. Uh, I was looking at one... Uh, uh, workforce 2010 projection from uh, the year 2000, uh, which forecast that over that, the decade yeah. from 2000 to 2010, uh, the number of mining jobs would shrink substantially. <laughs> right. Uh, so I'm I'm guided by that in, in being wary about naming industries, but it's it's a pretty safe bet. The demand for skills will go up, uh, and certainly I would ex expect the the service economy to grow. Uh, things like healthcare, healthcare and finance yeah. have done well over recent decades, as have areas like education. Manufacturing will generate a lot of prosperity, but, but probably fewer jobs than it did in the investment yeah. phase. But you've got to keep on focusing on the quantity of education and also the quality too, I think, Craig. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, MO Forum uh, gives every guest a wish. And um, uh, what would you wish to do what would be the one big achievement that you would like to have recorded what would you like to change i don't think we do policy evaluation well enough in australia uh, i would love to see uh, more randomized policy trials what's that mean uh, a randomized trial is, is how we evaluate every new pharmaceutical right uh, so we have a treatment group and a control group and we toss a coin to decide which one you're in uh, the medicos fought hard against them in the early 20th century, uh, but then following the success of the penicillin randomised trial, it's now accepted that if you want fu government funding for a new drug, you've got to show through a randomised trial that it works. They can be applied quite successfully to mm -hmm. uh, social policies as well, not all of them, but many of them. And right. I think if we do more randomised trials of social policies, we'll get a better sense as to what works, uh, and what doesn't. For example, in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, I mean, that, that's a great concept, but th there are trials being established right now. There's, there's absolute, absolutely trials being, being mm. rolled out, but I would imagine things even on uh, a, a more local level. So is it better to assist people to quit smoking uh, by uh, paying them uh, a certain bonus if they're able to stay off cigarettes for, uh, for six months? Uh, or uh, are you better to instead be subsidising nicotine patches? Mm -hmm. You can run a randomised trial yeah, and learn the answer to that in quite an economical way. And indeed, the MySchool website is a little bit, it encourages this sort of thing in education. 
Precisely. Mm. We have a lot more data. And, and for example, in the United States at the moment, uh, you're seeing uh, evaluations or randomised trials uh, on the way in which that, that school data is provided to teachers, uh, looking at whether teachers do better uh, having uh, student growth information or student levels information. Uh, in developing countries, randomised trials are being used to look at deworming techniques and uh -huh. class size. Oh, and fascinating. So it's an area that I think is 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 ripe for expansion. I can hear, I can feel another MO forum coming along <laughs> sometime in the not too distant future. So finally, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, uh, uh, Hayek, John Maynard Keynes. Where do you come from? Where's I'm, your inspiration? I'm a, a strong Keynesian, and I guess the uh, the the people who I uh, admire the most were the uh, Father, Labor. Son, and the Holy Ghost. No, that's from a, that's from a song, and we won't <laughs> break into song. <laughs> uh, which which you know you should definitely do a, an economics of music mo forum at some stage. Uh, the the labor economists that I studied with in the in, in the US, uh, people like uh, Larry Katz, uh, David Elwood, uh, Christopher Jenks, who was my thesis chair, uh, people who had, uh, as, uh, as 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 one of the great books from the nineties put it, um, uh, warm warm hearts but hard heads. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Professor Andrew Lee, who's now the Shadow Assistant Treasurer. Uh, lots of policy challenges ahead and steering the ship of the uh, progressive side of politics is a big responsibility and I'm sure you'll be making a major contribution to it. Thank you very much for Thanks, appearing. Thanks, Thank you. Great to be on board.